Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Bible professor Mark Hamilton introduces us to the season of Lent and leads us in an exploration of the scriptures that help the church prepare for Lent and Ash Wednesday 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this first in a series of podcasts called Preaching in Season, in which we will explore the text that the church will read during the season of Lent. My name is Mark Hamilton, and I'm a professor of Old Testament and Biblical Studies at Abilene Christian University. And I welcome you to this conversation that we will have about these texts that the church will read. You know, people come to Lent with different understandings and different expectations. For many Christians, this is not really part of their spiritual practice. And and so some of what might be said might not quite connect, but I, I hope that in reading these texts, even if Lent itself is not part of what you do as a Christian, uh, that you will learn something and gain something from, from our exploration, however brief, of the text that much of the church will read during this time. For some people, Lent is just a time of giving up things that we happen to like, so I'll skip chocolate for a few weeks or whatever. And for other people, it's a time of deep remorse, uh, a sense of that I need to repent and turn away from evil in some way. There's some truth to that first view, and there's some truth to that second view, but Lent is much bigger than either any of that. Lent is about clearing away the rubbish in our lives, reorienting ourselves to the ways of God and the ways of humanity so that we can receive with joy the good news at Easter that Christ is risen, that good has triumphed over evil, that death is not the end, and that we ourselves need not be afraid of the evil in the world. That good news is the very heart of the Christian message, and yet it is so dramatic and powerful that we have to work a bit in our own lives to prepare ourselves to hear it faithfully and with the level of joy that it deserves and that we ourselves deserve to experience. So Lent is a season preparing for Easter. It began back in the late Roman Empire. Remember that in the early church, often Easter was the time at which baptisms occurred. People who had been preparing for baptism for months, who had studied the faith, who had a basic understanding of the Christian life, and who were willing to put aside the things that got in the way of carrying it out, received baptism. And so in order to prepare for that, uh, we get the season of Lent. But it's, of course, not just for new converts. Or, or explorers or searchers. It's, it's for those of us who've been Christians a long time as well. It's a time, again, when we get to turn, to change. You might want to use the old-fashioned word repentance. As long as we remember that repentance is more than just a recognition that I've done something horrible and I need to, uh, to get rid of it, to acknowledge it and, and remove it from my, my life. Uh, repentance is a is a broader concept than that. Or maybe you think that word I just can't use that word. Let's use the old the Old Testament word. The Hebrew word is shuv. It means to turn. And to turn can take many different forms. 
the basic idea is I'm headed to some destination and I took the wrong turn off the highway. I got lost and now I'm wandering around trying to get back to the highway. So I turn, I turn back to the highway. So I'm headed down the correct path. That's, that's what turning means and it can take many forms. It can be about the removal of some heinous evil from my life. It can be about just a readjustment, a relearning. It can be an embrace of hope when I've felt hopeless. So there, there are many ways in which we turn. And Lent is a season that allows us to do that. I pray the following prayer for us all. Lord God, who turned back to us and calls us to turn to yourself, we ask you to be with us during this season of Lent. Grant us wisdom, grant us patience, grant us courage, and above all else, grant us hope and joy so that we may love you with our whole hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray in the name of the one who was raised from the dead and who sits with you enthroned in glory, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This week is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent. Many of us have seen neighbors or experienced ourselves uh, the imposition of ashes. And we watch people going around with little smudges on their foreheads, or maybe we are that ourselves. And we, and we have a sense that something, something unusual has happened. Ash Wednesday reminds us that we are dust and ashes, that life this life is not all there is, but this life ends and, and we have limits. And in order to live within those limits with integrity, we have to have take on certain qualities. So the church will hear certain texts this day, Joel 2, 1 through 2 and 12 through 17, Psalm 51, 1 through 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 6, 10, and Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and 16 through 21. And I'd like to make a few comments on each of those texts. I'll begin with the gospel text because I, th I think that's the one that most people will hear and most people will be familiar with. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus explores certain practices of piety. He's given his disciples basic guidelines about how to manage their relationships with other people. And now he turns to how we manage our relationship to God, so to speak. Uh, but, but of course, those two sets of relationships are always intertwined. We cannot honor God while mistreating our neighbors. Um, and so he says in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your piety in front of others in order to be seen by them. It's In a way, it's an interesting opening because it, it creates a, a kind of paradox. He said back in 5 verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before other people so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is not calling on his disciples to hide everything, he's, but he's going to questions of motivation and, and of practice. And in chapter 6, he wants to say, you don't do religion in order to impress people. You don't do your religion in order to be seen by people. He's warning us off of things like hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And he's warning us off of an instrumental view of religion, that religion is serves some higher purpose. 
Uh, we do these things in order to achieve something bigger. And he says, no, 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 these are the big things. If you give alms, don't blow a trumpet in front of yourself. Don't call attention to it. Do it discreetly. So that, for one thing, you preserve the dignity of the other person receiving the gift. And for another thing, you bring honor to God and you bring betterment to the world and not just yourself. I think Jesus might very well frown on some of our charitable practices uh, in which charity is kind of a, a ticket you pay uh, to obtain more power and influence. Uh, he also talks about prayer in this conversation. But he, he wants human beings to live, live with tension a bit between hiding religion and avoiding it on the one hand and doing it for some purpose other than itself on the other. Ash Wednesday calls on us to examine our own spiritual practices to think through our motivations and be clear about them. Then we have another text that is, is quite different, and that is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has written to this church, this very disturbed church, a very disturbing letter called 1 Corinthians, and now he writes one that's a little less disturbing uh, and in many ways more grand, uh, that is uh, 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5, we don't regard each other or anybody from a human point of view. He's talking about being reoriented in our, our understanding of the world. And then in verse 20, he talks about being ambassadors for Christ. And then he goes on to say, we are making, he is make, God is making his appeal through us to you. Be reconciled to God. This is not a call to the outsider. Although there is, a, there is a call to the outsider that has many of the same words. But this, in this text, is a call to the insider, to the Christian, to the believer, to say, be reconciled to God. There are parts of our lives that are not reconciled, that are in disarray. And sometimes it's because we flagrantly decide to run over other people. Sometimes it's because we have succumbed to despair and to hopelessness that we are consumed by our anger, even anger at, at real abuses, things that we, we really have been wronged. And we really do want a remedy and, and seek a remedy, but we've allowed that, to def that, that pain and anger to define our lives. So that's one of many ways in which we can be unreconciled to God. And then he goes on in a way that I find very beautiful. We, as we work together with him, as workers together with God, as the old King James Version says, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. He says to these people, embrace what you have received. Be who you are. You come to God in God's mercy. And then he, he quotes the Old Testament. Uh, from Isaiah 49, verse 8. At an acceptable time I have listened to you. On a day of salvation I have helped you. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. He says to these people, the sort of promise of deliverance and relief that the book of Isaiah made to the exiles who had, who had lost their homeland and lost their culture and been sent away to Babylon, that sort of offer of deliverance is now being offered to you 
So the, the Christian walk, he says, is not some small little thing that involves moralism or being part of a nice social club or behaving nicely or whatever. It's, it's part of a grand, beautiful story of which we are part. And we get to live in ways that reflect that. He says he has been through, he's been through some terrible times. And we'll talk about this later in the series, how Paul understands his suffering, which is profound, to be a, an avenue to imitating Christ. And so he finds, even in his suffering, redemption. But he also talks about the, the active ways, not just the things that have happened to him, but the things he has tried to embrace. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love. These are, these are all attributes that he will talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that very beautiful text about the nature of love. These are all features of love. Uh, Ash Wednesday and Lind in general, I would suggest to us are, are avenues for reorienting our loves. What is it that we love? What are the things that we would we would die for, that we can't live without? Ash Wednesday is a chance to reconsider this. It's not about giving up chocolate or taking it on. It has nothing to do with that. It's about asking ourselves, what is it we really love and are committed to? Are the things we truly love worth that love? And that, that level of honesty uh, that is required is 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 hard at first, uh, but it's it's very liberating as well. It says to us we need not be defined by the things that tend to define us. That 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 sense of redefinition also appears in a text like Joel chapter two. Uh, Joel is a, is a very strange book. It's a kind of anthology of, of prophets in general. And so you see quotations from other prophetic books and kind of remakes of prophetic motifs. Uh, but you get this discussion later in chapter 2 of Joel, uh, beginning in verse 12. Even now, says the Lord, return with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So he invites the people who have who have done wrong and experienced the consequences to engage in a ritual practice that will reorient them, fasting and prayer. Uh, but this is, this is not just an external show. Verse, thir verse 13, rend your hearts and not your clothing. He's, he's not against tearing their clothes. That, that's the way they showed remorse in mourning. They, they tear their clothes and if they're men, they tear their beards and so on. He's not against that. He's simply saying it's, it's not enough to do that. Also, rend your hearts. Let this, let this be internal and external. Let this be something people can see immediately and something that'll take them a while to see. And so he says in verse 13, Return to the Lord because he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishing. The line should ring a bell because a very similar line appears about a dozen times in the Old Testament, most famously in the 34th chapter of Exodus. That's the climax of the, the golden calf story. So the people of Israel, if you remember the story, the people of Israel 
have missed Moses for a little while and they decide uh, to start breaking the Ten Commandments. And they start with commandment number one about idolatry. And quite understandably, uh, God is annoyed by that and, uh, and disciplines them, kills some of them, if we're uh, to be honest about it. And then Moses pleads for the people. And finally, and laying out what it means to be an intercessor for the people. And by the way, we should explore that text at length sometime. By laying out what it means to be an intercessor for the people, Moses is able to convince God to start over, to reboot the covenant, if you will. And that rebooting begins when the Lord appears to Moses and announces the Lord's self in the ways that the priests would have in the temple, which I, I think must be where this line comes from. It's, from. it's from the sanctuary. It's the sort of line you would hear in the temple from the priest at certain times, announcing the presence of the Lord and announcing the mercy and graciousness of the Lord. And Joel draws on that tradition, whether he has in mind Exodus 34 or not, or he just has in mind the language from the temple. I don't, I don't know, and it's hard to know. He doesn't the, the wording is not exactly the same as it is in Exodus, so I think it's probably from the liturgy of the temple. But anyway, he says, God is a God of mercy. And so if we truly turn to God, we should expect mercy. He says something in verse 14 that may sound like a bit of hedging his bets, because he realizes that God has to determine this, not just us and the repentance, rituals of repentance, including Ash Wednesday, are not magic. They don't force God to do anything. They simply do what we can do to reestablish a relationship that's gone off the rails in some way. And he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. It's a fascinating line because it also shows up in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter three, verse nine. And there, the same line is in the mouth of the king of Assyria, who has heard the message of this crazy prophet Jonah to repent and has taken it to heart and ordered his, orders his people to repent. He goes to such a length that he even orders the donkeys to be clothed in sackcloth, just in case the donkeys were somehow implicated in the sins of the people. Well, that's, that's part of the humor of the book of Jonah. Uh, again, a text worth exploring at length some other time. But Joel quotes the same line. I don't know if Jonah's quoting Joel or Joel's quoting Jonah or they're both quoting something else. Uh, it, it's hard to know. But the line is the sense that God is free to respond how God wishes. But because God is a God of mercy, we have confidence that, that the response will be positive to genuine turning. God will not turn away the contrite. God will not turn away the desperate. God is willing to receive and embrace us. That, that idea comes clear in the last text that I will talk about for today. The other text the church will read from Psalm 51, a very familiar text a lament in which a confession of sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, some of the language we have to be careful with, and we have to remember that this is poetry, and in poetry uh, there, there is hyperbole, there is exaggeration for effect. And so when the psalmist says, I was born guilty, I was conceived in sin, I don't think we can build on that some sort of um, construction about uh, inherited or original sin. I think it's simply a line that says, I've been a sinner as long as I can remember. I don't think we can take that literally any more than we can take literally Psalm 23 statement, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, he makes me lie down in green pastures as though I were a sheep. You know, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for something, however, and that something in this case is that this person feels that his or her sin is, is profound. It's not some accidental mistake. It's, you know, my life's really messed up. And and then there's the turn in verse 6. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. The God, the God who is judge, the God who is savior, is also the teacher. It's the one God. And the relationship uh, can be healed if we're willing to learn. I think Lent is about that as well. This is a season of learning learning about ourselves, learning about our neighbors, learning about scripture, learning about Christian theology, learning about the world around us. It's a time to pay attention. You know, we, we live in a world where people, I mean, honestly, we don't pay attention. We're not very good at paying attention. Uh, we're addicted to, well, we're addicted to our devices so that all our attentions are focused on one thing, which is usually meaningless. And therefore, we ignore all the things around us. Lent is a season of attentiveness. If I were going to give up one thing for Lent, maybe it is inattentiveness that I should give up. Maybe turn off, turn off our phones a bit. Turn off, the, turn off the social media. Look in the face of the person standing near me. Say hello to that person rather than the one far away. Engage in conversation. Listen longer than I want to. Remembering that my ability to listen has been impaired by certain practices that have been marketed to me. Uh, that's, that's a good lesson for Lent as well. And there are many others. We'll continue this series with more podcasts. There will be eight in total. And I hope that you'll join me in this exploration of this beautiful season and the beautiful text that the church will encounter during it. Thank you for listening. I look forward to conversations with you in days ahead. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.